Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Vox Media is looking for a principal designer for their platform group, and you can work out of their NYC or DC offices as well as remotely. Also starting this month, we've included job postings from Indeed.com for full-time positions across a number of different titles. So check out the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs and find your next job today. You're listening to the Revision Path podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. MailChimp just recently improved their automation features so you can do cool things like drip email campaigns, connect with shopping cart softwares, and create custom workflows to do all kinds of cool stuff. Sign up today at MailChimp.com. Do you need a new domain for your next project? Check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code SPREADLOVE and save 10% off your purchase. Now for this week's interview, I talked with Mina Markham, a front-end engineer in New York City currently working for the Hillary for America campaign. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Mina Markham. I am a front-end architect. Sometimes I refer to myself as a sastronaut. I currently work for Hillary for America, which is Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. I do all things front-end, CSS, graphic design related there. Now, as someone that has also worked on a few campaigns, kind of doing pretty much similarly what you're doing, I take my hat off to you because I know what that's like. I haven't done it for as big a campaign as hers, but certainly... I've done like mayoral campaigns, Senate campaigns and stuff. It's no joke. It is no joke. What is, if you can encompass this easily, like what's a typical day like for you working on the campaign? I learned pretty quickly that there a typical day is that there really is no typical day. Like it <laughs> is, everything is very, it's, it's very fluid, very, it's very quickly changing. Kind of like hitting a moving target, basically, like the goals and the the main goal, of course, is to get Hillary Clinton elected president. But like the day to day, like milestones to get there kind of change with what's happening around us. So Mm -hmm. I've learned to be like very, very fluid and very like easily adaptable. Just kind of go with it. Like the most important thing that you needed to do yesterday may not be that important today. Like maybe they shifted their focus to something else. So yeah. I've just learned to like kind of not get too attached to certain ideas that I thought were going to be big. And then all of a sudden, you know, we need to move mm-hmm. on. Absolutely. You know, campaigns are really almost like these mini corporations in a way, how they sort of just build themselves up. And then once the campaign is over, it just really quickly dissolves it goes away is this your first campaign that you've worked it is my first campaign we like to kind of talk about it as like it's kind of like building a startup from scratch and then dismantling it at the end like you really do you start with you start with nothing and we started with 
no technology team. In fact, I was the first engineer that they hired. And now we have a team of like 30 people and we're going to want to keep hiring more. But yeah, at the end of it, like when the campaign's over, regardless of the outcome, it's done and everything kind of disappears. Yeah. Well, if I can give you any advice from July to October, just be ready for anything, (laughs) anything, particularly October. they, They call that. That's usually when the October surprise happens, whatever that is. From July through October, just be on your toes. You never know what's going to happen. Those are like, it's like the crucial home stretch before Election Day. Okay. okay. <laughs> is it different working on a political campaign than it is working for a company? It is. I mean, the day-to-day of what I do isn't all that different because I'm still a developer. I'm still an engineer. So, like, the actual tools that I use to do my job and solve problems are not very different. The The types of problems that I have to solve are slightly different. And of course, the impact, the potential impact of them is very different. But yeah, the actual, like, my actual job function isn't all that. It's, yeah, it's very, very similar. Okay, cool, cool. I want to go back to 2003. Okay. Uh, you went to Syracuse University. I did. Tell me about your time there. What did you study? I studied graphic design and women's studies. That's what my degree ended up being in. I went to Syracuse, actually, to study journalism. I went to the Newhouse School, which is one of the best communication schools in the country, because I wanted to be a journalist. And it was in my sophomore year when I started taking like more reporting-oriented courses that I realized it wasn't quite for me. But along the way of doing that, they also had me take all these graphic design courses so I can learn like layout and how to like make my articles look nice. And I really was into those classes. And so I ended up shifting my focus halfway through and doing design. And that slowly has molded, like just shifted into me being a developer. Do you feel like Syracuse really kind of prepared you for the working world once you graduated? Yeah, it prepared me in a lot of different ways. I would say like academically, it, it didn't necessarily prepare me for the job I do now because it's very different than what I went to school for, but mm-hmm. it prepared me for like, basically being an adult, like which college is supposed to do. Like I'd never been away from home. I originally from Kansas, so I like left my my little bubble and went to went to someplace I was very unfamiliar with. And yeah, it definitely taught me to be very self reliant. It taught me to you know how to kind of work my how to deal with the world, I guess. Syracuse mm-hmm. being a predominantly white school actually helped me think, like kind of deal with being in that kind of environment just because it's a reality that that's you're going to have to deal with predominantly, predominantly white environments no matter where you go. So it's kind of just it kind of helped me prepare me for in a more like cultural and social aspect, not so much like actual vocational or technical skills. Okay. Did you end up going to Dallas after graduation or did you stay in Syracuse for a while? I actually went home back to Kansas first because I didn't really have anywhere else to go. And (laughs) then I went to, I got a job working for AT&T in my hometown and I was laid off from said job in my hometown. But they were like, we have this job in Dallas if you want it. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go. So I went to Dallas. Yeah, you and I have that in common. We both have done production work for AT&T slash (laughs) The Yellow Pages. You did it for four years, right? Yes, that is really right. Congratulations. I did it for, I think, like two years. I don't know if that's congratulations. I probably should have left long (laughs) before I did. It's it's a shared commiseration. We'll put it that way. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, I, I did that. I, I did that for, a, like I said, a long time, probably a couple of years past when I should have saw something else. But that actually came from, I guess, from my parents, like from something they taught me growing up is that, you know, you kind of you stick with stuff. Like if you have, quote unquote, the good job, there's no reason when there's no reason to leave. Like, why would you look for something else if you have no reason to? So yeah. I stuck it out for a, a very long time until I kind of realized I was miserable and I had I had to bounce. <laughs> Amen. That's pretty much how I left. The same way I, I realized that I couldn't kind of keep doing this production day in, day out stuff and I needed something more and I left. So I, my hat goes off to you again for that. That's great. After that, you kind of worked around a few a few companies and studios in Dallas. Is that right? Yeah. When I left AT&T, I actually didn't have a full-time job. That was when I made my transition from designer slash production artist to developer and that's actually why I ended up leaving AT&T is because I really wanted to do development they just weren't giving me the the environment I needed to do that so I ended up leaving and taking some contract work I started working for yeah a couple of advertising agencies and startups around Dallas I did the yeah, contract work for three months at a place called uh, Maroc and then I went to a startup called Extra Sauce, and I worked there for a few months. And I kind of was getting my, you know, just getting my feet wet in development and kind of figuring out what this new role, this new world was, and building mm-hmm. my skill set from there. Was that sort of a big shift? Because, like you said, your parents kind of instilled in you this notion of kind of sticking it out at one place, and you you did that for a while. You stuck it out, and then now you're kind of this hired hand going from place-to-place working was that a big kind of change for you it was a big change and it was it was uncomfortable for me because I just I was used to disability and I kind of like the idea of disability so the idea that for me doing like a temp job like for any given reason I can be let go like that day and be done with it like it it made me nervous Mm -hmm. but I also knew that this was a necessary step in what I eventually wanted to do. So I was like, all right, I, I made a plan and I kind of worked around it. I ended up leaving a couple of the temp jobs before uh, like, or at my contract was up because I just kept bouncing. I, I kept thinking about my next move while I was at my current place. So I was like, okay, if this doesn't work out, like I had a backup plan. So I kept, that's what made me feel more comfortable in like the uncertainty of it was like knowing in my head okay I have a backup plan if this should go wrong Mm -hmm. and so as you were kind of doing this I think you were also freelancing as well right yeah I had been freelancing kind of like on and off since college like that was actually how I started teaching myself development and coding because like I said I didn't learn it as a part of my curriculum I taught Mm -hmm. I taught myself via my freelance projects and so yeah I'd been doing that part-time like for years and speaking of teaching, one thing that I saw kind of as I was doing my research, one thing I really love about your journey as a designer is that a lot of it is about giving back to the community and about teaching. Mm-hmm. When you started the chapter of Girl Develop It there in Dallas, when was that? Oh, that was probably in, I guess, 2013, maybe. Yeah, but I started the Dallas chapter. I started it because I heard about girl development at one of the conferences I was attending, like when the the speakers was the instructor for, I think, the Philadelphia chapter. Yeah, Jen Lucas. Um, that's where I heard about it. And I was like, that sounds pretty cool. I want to do that. And so I looked for the cha- a chapter in Dallas so I could teach. I saw there wasn't one. So I was like, okay, well, what do I need to do to get one? Then I started talking to the people at the Girl Development Headquarters to figure out like what I needed to do to become an official chapter. And a few months later, I, was, I started one. And that 
-hmm. ended up being like a lot of fun and more work than I thought it would be. And ironically, because I was leading a chapter, it meant I didn't get to teach as much as I wanted to. But it was a wonderful experience because I got to bring something to Dallas that wasn't there before. And like so many women told me, like after it started, like people who were getting to the events, so many people came up to me. It's like, I'm really happy this is here. I'm really happy this is around because I'd been looking for something like this. And so that made, that definitely made me feel really, really good. And the chapter's still around now, right? It is still around now. Um, I had to step down as chapter leader because I moved to Austin and then eventually to Brooklyn. But yes, it's still there. It's still going. And aside from, you know, your volunteer work that you've done with, I mean, well, of course, starting the Girls Development chapter, but you've done volunteer work with GitHub, with Black Girls Code, and you've done volunteer work around issues kind of that affect women, like the Dallas area Rape Crisis Center. Yes. What kind of, I guess, sparked this need for you to kind of give back to the community like this? It's hard to say, really. When it comes to the things I do with teaching, it was more out of a need of, I didn't have it, so I'll do it for someone else kind of deal. Like when I was trying to figure out uh, computer science and programming, I didn't really have anywhere to, I didn't have anyone to turn to or anything to kind of help guide me. I had to kind of figure it out stumbling on my own. So when I figured out there was a way I could make it easier for someone else, I was like, hey, why not? And plus, the thing they don't tell you is that teaching someone else actually helps you learn it better. So it was kind of a, it was a little bit selfish on my part. too. <laughs> as far as giving back to like the volunteer work for the, the Rape Crisis Center, I do have a degree in women's studies. My background is like gender studies and uh, gender equality kind of issues. And so that's always been very important to me. So any kind of cause or any kind of organization that helps improve the lives of women, I'm all about it. One thing that I see now in the industry, I think it's more kind of in the tech industry, but it's starting to spill over into the design industry is about kind of designers giving back or designers really starting to stand up for social issues in some sort of way, basically using their skills and their talent for more than just, you know, something on the computer or something like that. What do you think might prevent some designers from wanting to, to give back in that way? I think what I've heard the most when people are hesitant to do something like that is that they don't think that they are a quote-unquote expert or good enough or they don't think that they have the authority to be teaching someone else or to be telling someone else how to do something like they don't feel comfortable enough or secure enough in their own skill sets or to pass it along so to speak like they don't think that they don't see themselves in that position they think that that's somebody else's job that's that's someone else like someone smarter someone better can do that but not me that's a very interesting parallel because I feel like people have that same notion you know, when it comes to learning technology or learning design, it's that same thing of they may not want to get out there because they don't feel like they are the expert in a way. Mm -hmm. Now, when you started speaking, was that sort of also pulling on that need for you wanting to, to teach and to learn more? Yeah, my journey into speaking was honestly, I'm not even sure what happened. One day I woke up and decided, you know what, I'm going to speak at a conference. I really don't know what prompted me. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking, and I still think I was a little crazy to make that decision, but actually, what I take it back. I do remember something kind of prompted me. It was, I was reading an article about the, the lack of female speakers in the industry, and 
the articles, one of their solutions was if you are a female, become one, become a speaker. And it's that's kind of a simplistic solution. But I think in the back of my mind, that kind of always stuck there. And so, yeah, then I find myself one day saying, yeah, I'm going to be a speaker. And then I just started applying places and eventually someone said yes. And you've spoken at a, a number of different conferences, Future of Web Design, NYC, O'Reilly's Fluent Conference, Converge Southeast, Distill, Midwest.io, even one conference that you help organize, Front Porch. How do you feel that your speaking voice has evolved as you've continued to do all of these appearances? I've gotten more confident on the stage because when I first did it, I was terrified and very visibly nervous like I'm pretty sure I was shaking and my voice was shaky like it's I don't think a video of that exists which I'm very thankful for but um, <laughs> but yeah I, I just feel like I've gotten a little bit more confident in my ability to get on a stage and talk to people and once I realize it's like the crowd is not against you. Like the big thing that I had to learn was that the people staring, the people who are looking back on you on stage, they want you to do well. They want to learn. They want you to succeed. They're not going to, yeah, they're not out to get you basically. So like if you mess up, if you screw something up or whatever, like there's not going to be like a lynch mob waiting for you when you get out. And also like when you give a talk, like people don't necessarily know that you have messed something up. Like you've rehearsed in your head so many times that mm-hmm. you notice immediately if you didn't do something the way you planned on doing it. But the people watching you don't know that's not, that's not what you meant to say unless you make them aware of it. So I've kind of learned to like, just remember that just because something didn't go the way that I wanted to doesn't mean that the people watching me didn't get something out of it. So I don't know, I guess I've just kind of learned to kind of go, kind of go with the flow, so to speak. But Also, I've just gotten better with practice. Like practicing, practicing, practicing really, really helps. Like I practice my talks a lot so that when I finally get on stage to do them, they feel very much second nature and very comfortable. So that in and of itself helped a lot too. Now with a lot of the conferences that you've spoken at, have they invited you or have you had to submit like a proposal? How has that process worked? Um, For the first couple of years, I submitted. I submitted to pretty much everywhere and strangely I got accepted almost every place I submitted to the last few the last seven, six or seven months or so like I've been starting to get invited so I guess I've gotten to the point where people have seen enough of my talks I've, I've proven myself to be a person who can do this and conferences are now approaching me which is which is great so it's a mixture of the two but at first yeah I just started putting my name out there and just submitting proposals and seeing what stuck Now, one thing that I want to discuss about conferences, again, because I I sort of hinted on earlier that you have co-organized a conference, Mm -hmm. Front Porch, which is in Dallas or Austin? It's in Dallas. In Dallas. Okay. And there's usually this perennial conversation around having, you know, conferences in our industry that have a diverse speaker panel or diverse attendees or things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, more women, more people of color, kind of just less of a white boys club altogether. Mm -hmm. I would love to get your thoughts on on this from your perspective as someone who has co-organized the conference when it comes to, I guess, pulling together the talent to appear at the conference is diversity really a difficult thing or is it just kind of a, an oversight by most people? I think it's a difficult thing if it's not something that is on your radar. If you expect it to just happen, then yes, it's very hard. I think that if you 
try to cultivate and curate your speaker list to be a diverse lineup, to have a diverse range of voices, then yeah, I won't say that it's easy because it's still a difficult thing to get speakers just in general and to get people who are competent and who are really, who know their subject matter and to get a diverse lineup like that in and of itself, it's all a very difficult thing to do. But diversity can happen if you do it, if it's intentional, if it's something that you have in mind that you want and something that you actually attempt and try to do, then yes, you can make it happen. But yeah, it's not just going to happen by people coming to you and submitting and magically you have your rainbow lineup. Like that's not going to happen. Right. Cause also the people have to be, you know, they have to speak. They have to be, I won't say they have to be good, but they certainly have to have experience. I think with speaking. So they know that when they get up on that stage, they're not going to freeze or anything. I won't necessarily say they have to have experience because no one has experience until they do. Like when I first spoke, I did, had no idea what I was doing. And if that was the criteria, I would have never gotten on anyone's stage. So I won't necessarily say they need to have experience. I will say they need to be willing to do it and have a passion about whatever they're talking about because the rest can be accomplished through mentorship like you can help a first-time speaker get the talk together and make it like a compelling story and compelling presentation like you can Mm -hmm. you can help teach presentation skills by doing like screencasts by doing like actually having them do one-on-one like giving their talk to you and you can give them notes like the rest of the stuff if you, again, have the mindset and intentionally want to make other people better at this, then you can make that part happen. But again, it's not easy and it has to be intentional. And I see that a lot of the things that that you've spoken about have largely been around SAS. And for people that are listening, SAS is a a CSS preprocessor. What do you love so much about SAS? Like, what's the (laughs) thing that really makes you excited about it? I love SAS for a couple of reasons. One is it actually is, I like to call it the gateway drug to programming because I was <laughs> a, wasn't to some extent still sort of am like very much removed from my traditional programming. Like I don't have a computer science background. So like a lot of the actual thing, a lot of the things that are like basic programming knowledge, like I have no idea about and SAS helped me to figure out, like I said, some of the easier things, like just figuring out what a loop is, like an if-else statement, like things, like small logic things that don't really exist in the realm of just playing HTML and CSS. Like SAS introduced me to that and helped me see it in a way that wasn't like intimidating and, was, and made sense to me and made me feel like, okay, maybe I can wade, my, wade into these other more like in my head advanced and scary programming languages. So for that was the one reason that it just it kind of just clicked in my head and made, and helped me realize that I could do more than I thought I could and I can understand more about this than I thought I could. Mm-hmm. But also, SAS is more than just like a programming language. It really is like a greater community. I've said I say this all the time. Like the people who not just people who create and maintain the SAS source code, but the other people who do things like the meetups and conferences, and they're all really amazing people. They're all very supportive. And so like the moment I stepped into that world I just felt welcomed and cared for and they really helped me blossom into a better developer because we could be feeding around them so yeah that's why I love SAS because it helped me to understand concepts I didn't know before and the people who also love it are great. Now you mentioned earlier before you moved out to Brooklyn you were in Austin and you were working where were you working at while you were in Austin? What were you doing? I was working at IBM Design in Austin. I was one of their front-end engineers for the yeah, their design studio there. 
I didn't know that IBM was really into design like that. I, I guess when I think IBM, I'm thinking big mainframe computers. Yeah. I actually interviewed someone from IBM, Iani Ekechuku. Oh, yeah, Iani. Yeah, a while ago. And I, I guess I'd never thought of IBM and design in that kind of particular way. Yeah, and that's partially what they're trying to change with IBM Design the Studio. Is they're trying to put design in the forefront and really redo all of IBM software from basically the ground up. They've hired a bunch of product UX and visual designers to kind of work, rethink and redo all of the, the UI and the user experience and hire developers to kind of bridge the gap between the engineers in the more traditional sense of IBM and the design studio to kind of like bridge the gap between the two of them to make sure that these new designs, these new experiences get translated into the actual products to reach the customers. So yeah, it was very, very cool experience to kind of be a part of this, what felt like a startup inside of the larger IBM corporation. Nice. I want to switch gears here. I know we've talked a lot about your work, but now I wanted to sort of switch gears and talk about you as a person. When you kind of look back at all of the things that you've accomplished, like your your speaking, the places that you've worked, do you kind of feel like that this is where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? I feel like, how did I get here? <laughs> it's probably the best, yeah, that's probably the best way of putting it because I did not see myself. Like, this wasn't really in my realm of thought of things that were possible before. Like I, I did not see this is where my life was going to lead. So no, I'm very, very surprised and very pleased and thankful. But yeah, I did not see it coming. How do you feel like your design voice has changed over the years? It's definitely, I think, evolved. It's more polished now. Before, I would kind of do things and I would design things and build things that I like because... I liked them. I thought they were pretty and I thought they, they, you know, they were good, but I couldn't quite articulate like why they were good and why I like them. So I've, I've gotten better at figuring out the why and like, like why certain things work and other things don't. And that in turn has made me better both designer and developer to be able to understand like, I guess, like understand like user experience and understand like why certain things are more effective than others. What motivates and inspires you for the work that you do? Being able to see someone actually use something that I've done. And a lot of times in the past, like I would build things that either wouldn't ship or just I never got to see like the end result, like the end user actually using something that I helped create. So I don't know, kind of being able to see the impact that my work, whether it be like my design work, my development work, or even like my work doing teaching and speaking, being able to see like someone actually take that, take it in, use it and do something great within their own life. And that kind of keep, motivates me to keep me going. In particular with like my speaking and teaching, like I've had women come up to me, um, usually uh, black women come up, up to me and say that it's so nice to see someone who they can relate to on stage doing their thing and it helps people tell me that I've inspired them and that's just that makes me feel really really good and that helps me to keep going when I really feel like I don't want to anymore who have been some of the people that inspired you any any mentors or anyone that you look up to yeah I look up to Denise Jacobs I met I met her once at the GitHub thing I went to and 
that was the first time I met her, first time I actually saw her speak in person, and she is absolutely amazing. And I've said more than once, I want to be her when I grow up. Like, she is kind of like my goal. Like, that is who I want to be. Aside from her, I look up to other, usually other women who have done, like, great things, like uh, Julianne Horvath. I look up to her a lot because I feel like she's done a lot for women in the tech community without a lot of getting a lot in return. She's kind of been put through the ringer for some of the things that she's done. And I kind of respect someone putting themselves out there like that. Yeah, I would say probably those two right now. Jen Myers is actually one of the people who helped mentor me when I was starting public speaking. Like she helped me walk through some of the, polish my, my speaking techniques and some of my, like some of the more like insecurities that I had. So I definitely always look up to Jen and kind of make sure I kind of keep abreast of what she's doing. So those would be probably the three people I look up to. For somebody that I guess is, is kind of just starting out that might be looking at your trajectory or you're looking at the path that you've taken, what advice would you give to them about working in this industry or getting started or anything like that? I would say that this industry moves very, very quickly. It's things change so fast that sometimes it's really hard to keep abreast. And I know that I struggle with sometimes feeling like I'm being left behind and feeling truthfully feeling stupid at times because like, oh, you don't know this new framework that just came out yesterday. What's wrong with you? So I feel like just being able to kind of cancel out some of the noise and just be confident in what you do know and realize that you won't and can't know everything that that definitely helps because after a while, like it does become kind of overwhelming to see everything that's happening, everything. Once you know what you don't know, it's, yeah, it, it starts to break you down a little bit. Particularly for people of color in this industry, I would just say like try to find, find ways to find others, other people of color to kind of look out for, to, to find a group of people who can support you and kind of understand your specific struggle, not just, in the industry, but just like as a person like that, having people in your corner who really get you and get it is very helpful to you because it's just, it's nice to have someone who has shared experience. What kind of excites you about design right now, just in general? Ooh, that's a hard question. I'm not sure what excites me about design right now. Although I probably, it's not, I don't know how exciting it is, but what is really piquing my interest right now is all the work being done around accessibility, like making sure that all the things that we make are, can actually be used by as many human beings as possible. But I think that's something that unfortunately gets overlooked a lot is that we strive for make things look cool and pretty and whatnot, but we kind of forget that real people have to deal with them at some point. So I think knowing all, like, yeah, the, the work being done around, around sexuality is really exciting to me. Also, all the stuff being done around, like, SVG and animations, like, that's pretty cool, too. I've been wanting to get more and more into that. So, yeah. Me, too. I know, especially now that the Adobe Creative Cloud has pushed out some updates to make it a lot easier to work with SVG and Illustrator. Mm-hmm. I, I want to get my... My feet wet on that, too. Mm-hmm. So I totally agree with that. Are you satisfied creatively? Do you feel like with what you've accomplished now up to where you are that you have kind of done what you want to do? Or is there something else out there that you still want to tackle, like a, a dream project or anything? I would say I'm satisfied right now. I haven't really figured out like the next step or like what my, my dream would be. Like, yeah, I, I don't have anything specific in mind when I think about that. Well, I'll tell you, once the campaign is over with, opportunities will come to you. (laughs) I guarantee. I've been told that I have. You will have your pick of things to do. People will want to seek you out. So, you know, it's kind of a good time right now. 
because campaigns can be pretty safe just in terms of knowing that you're going to be doing work on a consistent basis day in, day out, especially if you know the candidate is doing well. That's always a, a good thing. But yeah, once the campaign is over with, you'll have plenty of options plenty of options okay well once the, i'm only right now thinking about like once the campaign's over i'm gonna go on a beach and hide for like a month so yeah hey that's fine too <laughs> that is fine too that is absolutely okay speaking of that like what kind of stuff do you do for self-care because i know that campaigns can be super rigorous in terms of the amount of attention that they sort of demand from you for self-care, really, I just try to make sure that I take moments either during the day, like when I can get a spare time or like before I go to the office or after I get home, just sort of like do nothing, just turn my brain off as much as I can and just kind of relax and veg out. I like to, since I've never lived in New York and I haven't been here in a while, I, I, I'm trying to do like some sightseeing whenever I can, like get out and actually see the city and experience it and have some fun. But also mm -hmm. I just... I turn my brain off to anything remotely related to d design, to code, to politics, anything that reminds me of work. I try to like be devoid of it whenever I need a break. Do you get a chance to go to meetups and things like that while you're in the city? I haven't in a while. I did for a few months. So I kind of I went to some design meetups and some code meetups, but I haven't done a lot of it lately because things are kind of picking up here at the office. So I've been I've been here more often than not now. Yeah. I hear that the New York SAS community is pretty active. Oh, yeah, yeah. The New York SAS community, those, those are my people, yes. Um, <laughs> I haven't had a chance to actually go to any of the SAS meetups in New York, which is a shame. But, yeah, I, I've, I've met them all, like, individually, and I've been trying to, like, hang out with them when I can. But, yeah. Were your parents really supportive of you getting into design? My parents were supportive of me doing anything that they thought would make me I guess really anything that would get me a good job really is the best way to put that like they were they were okay with anything as long as they I was making in whatever in their head was a good job when they they're supportive of me because even though they don't quite understand what I do like when I was a journalist or when I was going to be a journalist like they could point to a newspaper article that I wrote or something, see my name in print and be like, okay, you did this. This is your thing. When I moved mm -hmm. to design, like, of course, you don't go around like citing your designs and putting your names on posters and whatnot. So they couldn't quite grasp the concept of, well, how's someone going to know you did that? Like, what, why is, is your name on it? <laughs> and so it took them a while to kind of get used to the idea that they, like, my work wasn't really going to be something that they can like readily identify now that mm -hmm. i work with computers and code and i build websites like this they're kind of the void the divorced of like what that actually means but they're very proud of me and, and they have a vague idea of okay well if i go to this you did something on this website so that that i could just say my baby did that okay right <laughs> <laughs> let's play sort of a, a small hypothetical game here. so let's say campaigns ended what would be sort of the dream project that you would want to do next it's kind of in my head my dream job i guess is kind of, it, i feel like it's kind of cheating but it really is true probably some developer advocate slash evangelist in some kind of way like basically doing what i did before speaking at conferences and talking about technologies but doing it for a company that was paying me that would be nice <laughs> but yeah i've been thinking a lot about like what the next role would be or like what my I guess, dream role would be. And I keep coming back to that kind of idea of being able to like spread the word about something I really believed in and something I was passionate about to other people. As far as like 
what kind of industry or company or product. I'm not quite sure yet, but I feel like that kind of role, like, or at least a role where that was also part of my job would be nice. Let's say hypothetically that Hillary ended up becoming president. Would you end up working for the government? There's a lot of factors in that answer, but it's <laughs> it's a possibility. I mean, if she does win, she has a White House administration of staff, so it seems logical that some people who helped get her there would go work with her. But the depth of that, I mean, I don't know how high on the list technology is, money, so I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, it's still a ways out. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I know right now there's. The U.S. Digital Service, there's 18F. Those are, yeah. are organizations within the, the government that sort of kind of do some of the things that you're talking about, but they also tend to set some standards as it relates to design and things like that. Yeah. I mean, if if I was asked, I wouldn't say no. I don't know if I'd immediately say yes either. But, hey, if I was asked, I definitely would think hard about it. I got gotcha. you. That's a fair answer. That's a fair answer. What is the best advice that you've been given regarding, I guess, what you do regarding your work? I'm going to say this, but it's going to sound kind of silly, but it's something that Denise Jacobs told me and it has really stuck with me for like ever since I heard it. But basically the best advice I've gotten is what would a white guy do? Mm. <laughs> and it's not just work related. It's kind of also, it's also life related. But basically whenever you're feeling insecure about something or you're like wavering to make some kind of decisions, just ask yourself, what would a white guy do? And usually the result is I do whatever it is I was afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's a really good. It's a really good piece of see? advice. <laughs> Where do you see yourself in the next five years? It's 2020. What's Mina Markham doing? Maybe running a company. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds far, but you know, it, it'll be here yeah, before you know. At it. the very least, maybe if I'm not running some agency or something maybe i am like i've moved into more full-time consultancy work like that probably is a little bit more realistic do you think you'd still be in new york or will you have kind of moved around to somewhere else yeah that's a question i'm not sure of yet like i i don't know i feel like i've been a nomad for a while like i moved to dallas and then austin and now here so like i, I don't really know where i want to settle so yeah, maybe i'll live my dream of just like being a remote consultant who kind of just lives on an airplane. That would be nice. That's not bad. Mm. Someone that I interviewed, <laughs> Silas Monroe, he calls himself a design nomad. Because mm-hmm. he kind of does the same thing. He's a, a professor, but he teaches. He's taught in Vermont, and then he's taught in Florida, and now he's in Ohio. And he, he just kind of, he's like Kane. He just kind of walks the path. Mm-hmm. And like goes where the design takes them and everything. So yeah, yeah, that's not a bad idea. I mean, it's. I think the first time I heard about that concept is at a SASCOM. Uh, Smith Schwartz said that she was basically like what she called a digital nomad. Like she would work freelance for companies and then just kind of be wherever she happened to be at the time. So yeah, I, I think I could do that. Not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. So Mina, just to kind of wrap things up because I know you're you're busy with the campaign. I can hear the activity oh, yeah. in the background there. <laughs> Where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Honestly, if you Google me, I'm, I'm pretty easily defined. My main website is Mina.codes. So that's pretty much my, my hub of the internet. My blog is there, although I don't write very often, but it's there. And you can see like some of the speaking stuff, the video, links to videos and talks that I've given. You also can check out my GitHub. That's usually where I post the code that I actually can post publicly. I'll put it there. So you can look at some of that. All right. Sounds good. Well, Mina Markham, thank you again, like I said, for taking time out of your day. 
I know that campaign work is it's busy. There's always something that's going on. So I really am appreciative of the fact that you could kind of carve out some time and speak with me. I really wanted to speak to you for a long time. I think we were supposed to speak during South by this year. But yeah, we, we were. It yeah, just we, didn't happen. Yeah, just couldn't, <laughs> just couldn't get the schedules there. But no, I'm, I'm really super grateful for the fact that you were just kind of able to share your story, share kind of what you're doing right now, kind of talk about your speaking work and things like that. It was really good. So yeah, thank you again so much. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thoughts of love are in. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Mina Markham and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Mina and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it simple. They have great in-depth reporting, new and improved autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover and save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code SPREADLOVE at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month, and you'll get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Happy holidays, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.